right, good morning, church. This morning, Pastor Justin is preaching and Pastor Ross is preaching. I know, will you guys woo for him? What? Today, yeah, I'm just kidding. Today, you guys get the two pastor price for one. That's a pretty good deal. But we have said that if you'd like, you can tie double. Totally cool with us. We're going to do a little back and forth up here. We got our, our stools to duel. So hashtag stool duel trending on, on Twitter. Uh, we thought about having each of us with one of those like taboo buzzers. And so when the other one was preaching, if we hear them saying anything that's heretical, we can just eh, and let them know that they need to get back with Jesus. Um, we also thought about having a debate. And then maybe we could just have you all vote on the winner at the end of the sermon. And the loser would have to start a sermon series on the Song of Solomon. Most... <laughs> awkward book in the Bible. So we'll see how that goes. May the best preacher win. Uh, it's it's going to be fun to be a little bit different this morning, uh, but as always, our heart, as John prayed, is that God would clearly speak through us and speak to us all um, today. And so we're going to be summarizing, we're wrapping up our series that we've been going through called The King of Kings. We're looking at God's work through the first three kings of Israel. And uh, we pray that that's been a help to you, an encouragement to you, at times sobering and convicting for you. And to wrap it up, we want to ask this question this morning, and it is, what does it mean for Jesus to be King of Kings in our lives today? If we talk about that reality, what, what, is it, what does it mean for us in in our daily lives. And we're going to look at one takeaway from each of our three kings. Ross will look at King Saul, I'll look at King David, and then Ross will look at King Solomon, and then I'll, I'll wrap us up. But to set us up, I want us to remember how Israel got into this whole mess of failed kings to begin with. If you remember back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, they said, we want a king just like all the other nations. We want a human king. And what were they ultimately saying to God? He tells us, the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Ultimately, what Israel was saying is, God, we don't trust you to be king of our lives. And I don't know about your heart, but mine on a daily basis struggles with allowing him to be the king. I'm a controlling man. I want things my way. I don't want to let him be the king of my life. And, and that is the most foolish way that I could live my life, is to reject the king. The wisest way I could live my life would be to acknowledge that he is the king. King Solomon, our third king, said these words in, in Proverbs chapter 9, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you want to live a life correctly, live a life rightly, it's to acknowledge, to fear God in, as who he is, the king of kings. Because the reality is, there is a king in this universe, like it or not, but I ain't the king, Jesus is the king. And Paul told us this in Ephesians chapter 1. He said, God raised him, being Jesus, from the dead and seated him at, the, at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, all authority, power, dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. He put all things under his feet, all things under Christ's feet. He's the name above all other names, now and forever. Above all powers, he is the most powerful And what is that implication? Philippians chapter 2, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ, the word Christ means Messiah, King, he's the King, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And on the last pages of the Bible, it says Jesus is coming back, and this time he's coming on a white horse, and he's got the sweetest tattoo you've ever seen, it's in the Bible, 
It says, King of kings and Lord of lords, written on his thigh. He's going to rule and reign for all of eternity. The gospel, the good news that we preach, is not that Jesus might be the king. It's not even that he could be your king. The good news, the news is this, that Jesus is the king. Amen? And, and it's up to us. We can reject him like Israel had, or we can acknowledge him like Solomon told us. That's the dividing line in human history. Those who reject him as king and those who acknowledge him as king. So this morning, we want to get real practical and say, how does the reality that Jesus is the king impact our lives on a daily basis? So we're going to see three from our three kings Saul will remind us that I'm not the king. David will remind us he is the king. And then Solomon will remind us that we need to let him be the king. And so for our first truth, I will pass the sermon baton over to Ross. Oh, oh sorry. <laughs> well, keep away. A little, okay, cool. little back and forth. You're trying to win the competition. I know. No <laughs> yeah, song of Solomon. Cool, cool. Awesome. Yeah, so, uh, so as, we, as we turn to the reign of Israel's first king, whom they had arrogantly chosen for themselves... We're given, if you remember, all the way back in, in 1 Samuel chapter beginning, really in ch- chapter 8, we're given the image of a real um, champion, a real man's man who takes charge and fights for his people. He, he hulks out, beats up all the bad guys. Yet, though he starts off strong, he leads the Israelites to multiple resounding victories over the Philistines very quickly, Saul's reign, the king that they had chosen for themselves, begins to sour. And it sours when he blatantly disregards God's commands to remove the Amalekites completely from the land. If you remember the Amalekites, they were, they were, they were horrible people in, in so many ways. Not only did they raid and oppress and abuse the Israelite peoples, they, they, uh, they blatantly worshipped other false gods, and they did so by offering child sacrifices, which is a horrendous abuse. These were not good people. And, call, and Saul's charge was to remove them from the land. And he did so in part, but ultimately he caved to public opinion. He yielded to the voice of the people and chose to disobey God's word. And it's in the aftermath of this, this is actually Saul's second sin, but it's in the aftermath of this sin that we find one of the most fundamental passages of his reign. In, um, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, beginning really in, in verse 13, we're told that Samuel, who's the prophet who had been ruling Israel before Saul, he comes out to confront Saul because of his disobedience. And, and the way that Saul reacts to this confrontation, the way that he responds to his sin, it becomes his defining characteristic as we consider his legacy. But the truth is that the way we respond to our sin today, when, when our sin is pointed out, that for you is your most fundamental attribute, your defining characteristic. And Saul, we see, he responds to this confrontation, he responds to his sin uh, in three different ways. So we're going to look at them really briefly, and then we'll think about some application. So first we see that Saul begins, tries to blame shift. And we see this in verses 20 through 21. Samuel asks the king directly, why did you not obey the voice of the Lord? And then Saul says in 21, look, I did obey. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission which the Lord sent me. And then 20, but the people took of the spoil. It was the people who disobeyed 
obeyed. And that sounds a whole lot like Adam in the garden, right? It was that woman that you gave me that caused me to sin. So Saul fails to respond to his sin appropriately because he fails to really own his sin as his own. But then Samuel presses even further, beginning in in verse uh, 23. He says, no, you're not going to blame shift. You disobeyed, and therefore God is going to tear the kingdom from you. He's going to, because you have rejected God, he will reject you. And Saul tries, so then Saul responds to this confrontation by another tactic. He instead minimizes his sin. He gives the eye roll, the TNFA eye roll. He, he takes the blame, but then immediately asks for forgiveness in verse 25. Look, it's, he's, he jumps immediately to, now therefore please forgive my sin. Saul refuses, or Saul, what he's doing is by rushing past his sin and presuming upon forgiveness, Saul demonstrates that he hasn't really grasped the depth of his sin. He downplays it. His his sin in his eyes was just a mistake, you know, a little slip up. But what Samuel points out is that it was not just a mistake, it was a high-handed, a fist-in-your-face rebellion against God, not something that can just be brushed off as light. And then thirdly, Saul refuses to accept the consequences. That is, a true repentance, full repentance, turning to Christ as full repentance is marked by a, a, a willingness to do whatever it takes to, to repair the relationship that is broken by our sin. Look at, what, look at what Saul does, what he says in verse 30. After Samuel comes to him, confronts him, Saul eventually just explodes in rage and physically lays his hands on Samuel and tears his robe. And then Saul, Samuel, um, he digs in his feet, says, no, you've sinned. This is what the Lord has said. He's faithful to relay the message of the Lord. And, uh, and, Samuel, and then Saul says in verse 30, okay, yeah, yeah, you're right. I have sinned, yet now honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. This is a, I'm sorry, but, I'm sorry, but. He's essentially saying this, I know I messed up, but do you really have to take away the kingdom from me right now? It would be really embarrassing in front of the leaders, in front of all my friends, in front of this nation, if you were to make me live with the consequences of my actions. Now it's easy to look at, to look at uh, Saul and to identify the, the, these marks of false or shallow repentance in him. But as we look at Saul we're really looking into a mirror. I find these, these three tactics, uh, I find myself to be guilty of these three all the time. Uh, when my, particularly this shows out in my relationship with my wife, with Monica, uh, when she graciously points out my sin, typically it's because I've said something harsh or I've made a sarcastic jab at her expense and she'll call me out on that. And my response is almost, always falls into one of these three categories. I will immediately try to shift the blame off myself, right? I'll say something like, I'm sorry, I know, but I'm just tired, you know, and I get cranky with, when I'm tired, as though being tired were some good excuse for treating someone poorly. Or I'll downplay it, you know, I'll try to minimize my sin, I'll say something like, I mean, I was just joking, right? You don't have to really take it that seriously. And by doing so, what I'm doing is not really listening to my wife. Instead, I'm minimizing the effects that my words had on on her, and I'm snuffing out her voice. 
Or then thirdly, I'll ignore or reject the consequences. See, when I hurt someone with my words, uh, when, when, we, when any of us hurt someone with our words, it, it, uh, it uh, tears at the trust. It, it removes trust. Trust becomes broken, and it takes work to rebuild that trust and to repair that relationship. But instead, what I do is just carry on with the rest of the evening as though nothing really happened, right? I, I expect or I assume her just to ignore it and for me not to have to work at repairing our relationship. And when I attempt to carry on with the evening as though everything were just fine, without stopping to acknowledge my wrongdoing or to repair what I've done, I demonstrate that I'm just trying to move past my sin without ever really turning from it. So where do you see these marks of shallow and fake repentance in your own life? Uh, This is how it plays out for me. But if we are... to walk in the fear of the Lord, as, as Solomon will call us to, and to follow him as our true king of kings, our lives must be marked by an honest and a thorough turning from our sins. Uh, Martin Luther, who's the reformer who kind of began the, the Protestant Reformation, he said it this way when he nailed the, when he nailed the 95 theses on the, on the door in, in the church in Germany. The very first of his thesis was basically summarized uh, in kind of English this way. It says, when our Lord Jesus said repent, he meant that the whole of the Christian life should be of repentance. Acknowledging and turning from our sin is not something we just move beyond. It's not something we do once, but it's something we do daily. Yet life-changing repentance can only begin when blame-shifting, when minimizing our sin, and when rejecting or ignoring the consequences of our sin comes to an end. So as we pull this, as we look at this, what becomes the defining characteristic of Saul, we find that we must acknowledge that we cannot be king of our own lives. And now as we turn into the reign of David, we, we learn what it means to believe that he really is the king. Thanks, sir. I'm glad I don't struggle with sarcasm toward my wife like Ross does. <laughs> right, baby? Silence. Icy silence. <laughs> Second lesson we're going to learn is from King David, that, that he is the king. Saul says, I'm not the king. David says he is the king. Now, the lesson I want to draw from comes from David's most, um, the most famous scene in, in his life, Um, And we're going to learn because Jesus is the king of kings, we need to fight battles in his name. This is exactly what David did in 1 Samuel 17 uh, when he fights the the, the giant. You know the context. We've got little shepherd boy with a slingshot. We've got nine foot nine freak Philistine carrying this giant javelin taunting David's God. And as, as he approaches him, what we don't hear from David is fear. What we hear is confidence. We know who should win the battle. But listen to David's words in verse 45. David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, the King of kings, whom you have defied. Now in these next two verses, I want us to to identify, we're going to see some things that are what God does, 
and some things that David does. So note them, I've, I've color-coded them for your convenience. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I, David said, will strike you down and cut off your head. He's calling a shot, this is awesome. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth and all that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. So he says very clearly, God's the one who saves. The battle belongs to him. And the way that this little shepherd boy is going to be this giant, it leaves no doubt where the real power lies. He's given you into my hands, and yet it's going to be me that cuts your head off. It's going to be me that feeds your men to the birds. You see, you see God's part, but you, all, you don't see David napping here, right? He is active. He's doing something too. Now, uh, Pastor Larry, my mentor, he, he gave me this illustration, and, and, I, and it was helpful to me. Um, let's say that I'm up in a tree, clearly terrified because I'm in a tree. And um, I want to get down from that tree because I have one good hip. I really don't belong in a tree. Something needs to change. But there's a problem, you guys. There's a giant grizzly bear roaming the ground, seeking whom he may devour, and he's heard that pastors are very tasty, right? We're gluten-free like the berries that he loves. So he's waiting for me, waiting for me to shimmy down the tree. I'm not going to because I know death is waiting for me. Death separates me from the ground. But if my true hero, my knight in shining armor comes and shoots that bear dead, Now, all of a sudden, I'm free to safely descend, right? But where am I? I'm still in the tree. Until I actually climb down the tree, I'm not on the ground yet. The grizzly bear has been taken care of, but I still need to descend. Spiritually, I was born stuck in a tree. And I was unable to get to my God to reach a relationship with him because of this big old grizzly bear of sin and death separating us. But the Bible says Jesus killed the bear. Colossians 2 says, if you, says you were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away, then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Jesus comes and karate chops that big old bear in the face, kills him dead, making the way for me to the ground, raises me to a new life, his life, forgives my debt by dying for me. And it says here, he defeated sin and death. He disarmed Satan and all of his cronies, all the spiritual forces working against me, and now I'm free. There's nothing separating me from a life and relationship with my God, but I'm still in the tree until I descend. And our part is the part of faith. By faith, I climb down the tree in the victorious name of Jesus, who has slayed the bear on my behalf. You see, we don't earn our salvation. Jesus killed the bear. Jesus slayed the giant. But we have to climb out of the tree by faith, trusting that Jesus is the way to the ground, believing that he killed the bear on our behalf. So what does this look like in our lives this morning? How, how do we fight battles in the name of Jesus? Two things I want us to think about. Number one, in the name of Jesus, we stop sinning. We stop sinning. Listen to me. We can look sin in the face today and say, you are defeated. We can, we can say, Jesus nailed you to the cross, buried you into the ground. 
Satan has no power over me. The flesh has been crucified and buried. And because of that, in the victorious name of Jesus, his part, this is what I can do, my part. In the name of Jesus, I can stop looking at pornography. In the name of Jesus, I can stop gossiping about that coworker that's driving me crazy. In the name of Jesus, I can stop abusing that substance or stop abusing that person. In the name of Jesus, I can stop having a terrible attitude and wallowing in my self-pity. And also in the name of Jesus, I can start loving. You see, because he raised me from the dead and gave me a new life and a new heart, his part, I can now bear the Holy Spirit's fruit in my life, my part. In the name of Jesus, I can say I'm going to be patient, fruit of the Spirit. I'm going to be patient with my children. I'm going to be kind to that coworker. I'm going to be self-controlled with that abusive substance. I'm, I'm going to be at peace in whatever circumstance I'm in. What a powerful name it is, the name of Jesus. And just like David, he said, the Lord saves, the battle is the Lord's. You see, the truth is, David did not slay the giants. It was God's power. But because God empowered David, he can cut off the head of that giant. I couldn't get down from the tree. Because Jesus killed the bear, I can descend. And because Jesus died and rose again, you and I, by faith, can stop sinning and start loving. But what does it look like? What, what does it look like when we let him be king? What, how is that going to affect the other people around, it, around us? For that, we're going to turn to our Solomon correspondent. Ross, over to you. You look, look what you made me do. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, man. <laughs> Thanks, Anchorman. So, cool. All right. Um, so, yeah, coming off this reign of, of David, in which he had, like, I guess, Elma Fudd, uh, conquered and victoriously through the power of the Lord, we turn in contrast to the peaceful reign of his son Solomon. And we're told, if you remember in 1 Kings chapter 3, that Solomon's peace and prosperity was the result of his wisdom his most defining attribute and in fact uh, would you just consider with me uh, this this kind of summary of of Solomon's reign that we that we find in 1st king chapter 4 verse 25 this is where i want us to to spend just the next couple minutes it says and judah and israel lived in safety from dan even to beersheba every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of solomon because of Solomon's humble dependence on God, the people of God were blessed tremendously through him. Because Solomon reigned by executing justice, each person was able to sit under his vine and his fig tree. Now, that's really weird language. We don't talk like that anymore. But basically what, what's going on is that every household was able to work for their living. This is the image that, that, uh, that Solomon uh, gives us. They were able to support their family and live in peace without fear of, an, of any enemy, any Philistine army coming to raid their land. They had what the Bible calls shalom, that is peace in, in, in every sense, the fullest and most robust meaning of that word peace. The security and the prosperity that the children of Abraham had been promised and longed for. This was the kind of fairy tale ending that Israel had, and it was because of Solomon's wisdom. You see, Solomon's wisdom, this is a picture of a 
vine and a fig tree. But Solomon's wisdom was measured by the impact he had on those around him, those within his sphere of influence. And this is the principle that we can draw from, from his life and apply to our, ours as well. By, by walking in the wisdom of God, we lead others. We point others to the peace of God. Now, this is going to look differently for us today. So we have to do a little bit of work on how we apply this because none of us in this room is an ancient Israelite king at the head of an earthly empire. But the, but the principle is still the same. Allowing God to reign as the true king of your life will produce wisdom that flows over and causes those around you to flourish. Have you ever met someone like this? Someone whose who's wisdom causes, causes them to radiate the peace of the gospel like a wood stove that radiates heat in a home. This kind of person, he doesn't contribute to the, to the gossip or the anxiety or the division in her workplace or family or her community group, but instead graciously engages sin and suffering in a way that builds up, in a way that brings peace, in a way that brings the gospel to bear in her relationships. Yeah, here's the thing. Solomon's wisdom it had its limits. The wisest man on earth had the limits of his wisdom. His reign eventually failed to bring lasting peace and security and eventually led to chaos and division. The fairy tale ended horrifically. And, as, and our task of wisely leading people to peace and flourishing is ultimately too great a task for us as well. Yet what's striking is that later authors of Scripture, they would look back on the peace of Solomon's reign, and they'd use this same language of each man sitting under his vine and his fig tree to describe an even greater peace that would be brought about with the reign of an even greater king than Solomon. So just listen to these words from Micah chapter 4. This is Micah chapter 4, verses 3 through 4. He's describing God here as he. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against, uh, against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. It sounds like a wise king bringing even, even greater peace than Solomon's. But here, here we go in verse 4. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. See, Micah here is describing a time when the Lord himself will rule over his people, and they will no longer, we will no longer have to settle for a king of our own choosing. Now, this began with the first coming of Jesus, and it will ultimately climax in the glorious return when he sets on his throne of a literal kingdom here on earth. Because, and this is possible because Jesus lived the wise life that Solomon couldn't live and the wise life that we ourselves should have lived. Yet his wisdom didn't lead him to a glorious earthly kingdom where he uh, experienced the riches of wealth and power. His wisdom led him to a cross 
where he died in our place. And he, when he rose from the dead, he brought peace and security, the shalom of the king of kings that's even greater than the shalom of Solomon's. Now it is those who are wise, those who are disciples of this king, this greater Solomon, will point others to the hope, the peace, and security found in a greater Solomon. You see, this is how we live like little Solomons, bringing peace and, and, and flourishing to those around them. We bear the message of the king. We will all metaphorically one day sit under our vine, sit under our fig tree, and we will do so based not on our wisdom, not on anything in us, but solely because of his grace. The question is, though, who in your sphere of influence, who in your community group, your family, your workplace, who needs to hear that message? Yielding to the king of kings will bring wisdom that benefits others. Our role is simply to speak that gospel wherever we're at. And in doing so, we bring a peace that's greater than Solomon's. It's awesome being able to sit here and just watch you all. and see who's nodding off, checking their football scores. I can see it all. Yeah, your Bible's on your phone, I know. Again, I don't struggle with sarcasm. I just don't deal with it. Um, I want to close us by looking at Psalm 63. It's cool. At the beginning of the psalm, it says, it's a psalm of David regarding a time when David was in the wilderness of Judah, one of the darkest moments of his life, being hunted like an animal by Saul and his men. And this is what David has to say. And as we read this, I want, us to, I want you to answer the question, what is the one thing in this text that David tells us, what is the one thing that satisfies his heart? What is the one thing that satisfies David's heart? Look at verse 1. O God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you. In this parched and weary land where there is no water. I've seen you in your sanctuary. And I've gazed upon your power and glory. Your unfailing love is better than life itself. How I praise you. I will praise you as long as I live, lifting up my hands to you in prayer. You satisfy me more than the richest feast. I will praise you with songs of joy. I lie awake thinking of you, meditating on you through the night, because you are my helper. I sing for joy in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your strong hand holds me securely. What's the one thing that satisfies David's heart. He's not very subtle here, is he? David was far from perfect. But what he is called is a man after God's own heart. And we saw in our story very clearly, David stumbles and bumbles around all the time. But he never stops pursuing a relationship with his king of kings. To love God is to be satisfied in him and him alone. Not, not the gifts, but the giver. Not the blessings, but the, the blesser. Not the kingdom, but the king himself. Not my life, but, but his. And ultimately, what it means for Jesus to be the king of kings is that we can have a relationship with him again. See, when he died and rose again, when he slayed the giant, when he killed the bear, he gave us access to come to the ground, to come home into a love relationship 
with the King of Kings, the Father of Fathers. That's why God created us. That's why he saved us when we went rogue, is that we might be able to bask in the glory of his love, to be able to know him. And the reality is that God is most honored when all that we do stems from delighting in who he is, not just mere duty. This is the difference between love-based delight and obligation-based duty. Now, yes, we do things at times because we need to do them. We're called to do them. But there is a deeper sense in which God is honored as king when they stem from a delight of our hearts to know him. And we know this in our, in our own human relationships, right? I'll give you the context of the picture that I showed you earlier up in the tree. This was at Zufari a couple Saturdays ago here at, with the children's program. Um, this was me kind of working through, it was a free counseling session, working through trusting uh, Jill to drive uh, the vehicle, and I am failing miserably. Um, if my behavior toward my wife, if, if my actions and attitude toward her are strictly obligation-based, if it's just duty, and you know, I make it obvious, how is, she, is that going to honor her? Like, if, I, if she's sick, and I'm like, yeah, let me check the vows real quick. In health, yeah, in sickness, there it is. All right, here's, give me your feet, I'll rub them, whatever. You know, here's your hot tea, careful. You know, maybe, I, I guess we're probably obligated to spend time together. So I, I got 15 minutes, I could squeeze you in for a quick walk before the basketball game starts. Let's go, let's go, let's go, get the shoes on. And she's just like, oh. Be still my beating heart, right? My, my friend's charming. But how honoring to her, if, if I fix my heart on her, if I gaze into her beauty and delight in her as the gift from God that she is. I say, you are beautiful. And I can't wait to spend all day with you. And I want to rub your feet, baby. I want to, well, we probably shouldn't get in further into Song of Solomon before... We'll see which one of us has to preach it. Obligation-based duty doesn't ultimately honor God. I have to go to church or else God will be mad at me. I have to read my Bible so that he doesn't throw a lightning bolt my way. I have to serve other people or he'll be ticked. You see the difference? But, but if, if, my, if my duty toward him is based in a delight in him, it does. God, I want to know you. And so I'm going to freely confess and repent of anything that's getting in the way of a relationship with you. And acknowledge freely that I'm not the king and you are. That, that God, I, I want to, as much as I'm seeing your love for me, as I understand it in your word and I've seen it in my life, I trust you to lead me, to guide me, to be the king in my life. And I want to love you like you loved me. I see it so clearly in Jesus' death on the cross for my behalf. You see the difference? Is your, what's your relationship with God like? Is it just obligation-based duty or love-based delight? If you'd, if you'd bow your heads and, and close your eyes with me, I want us to end, I want us to do a little bit of heart work here as you're able. Uh, maybe this morning for you, maybe there's a space that you need to admit that you're telling God you ain't the king or you've been unwilling to confess or repent of something you know you need to. And maybe like Ross talked about with Saul, maybe, maybe you've been blame-shifting doing a great job at, at telling God how it's everybody else's fault. Maybe you're minimizing sin in some way, saying it's not that bad, everybody else does it, it's not going to affect anybody else. Maybe, maybe it's rejecting the consequences, that you're not owning up to what you've done and accepting the consequences, even when there is grace. Maybe, maybe this morning you need to acknowledge that he is the king, and he's calling you to believe and rest in his victory. And because of Jesus' 
victorious conquering of sin, there's an area in your life you need to stop sinning. You need to put that thing down. You need to change directions. Maybe there's a lot, an area you've got to start loving. That person that you have not been loving, it needs to change. It needs to change today. Maybe this morning you need to ask for wisdom and how to love others in his way, his timing, his wisdom, but to invite others into a love relationship with their God based on the way that you, or do you bring peace or do you bring discord into the lives of others? And maybe this morning you, you haven't bowed the knee to Jesus at all. Maybe you've never acknowledged him as, as Savior and Lord. It says one day every knee will, will bow, every tongue will confess. But for some, for many, it'll be too late. Are you delighting in the King of Kings? Psalm 27, does your heart echo David's? Is he the one thing your heart seeks? That the one thing you ask to be in his presence, to be gazing on his beauty, to be delighting in his perfections. And if you're like me, most of the time I have to answer no to that. But I know deep down in the new heart that he's given me, that's what I want. I know deep down that's the only thing that'll satisfy me. Father, we need you. Every hour we need you. We cannot be the kind of people that you've called us to be if it's not your work in us, your power, the one that slayed the giant. Father, may we rest in that victory, acknowledging we're not the king, fully embracing you as our king, and walking in your wisdom as we go forward. I want you to take the next minute here just to do a little bit of heart work, just you and the Lord. One of those areas the Holy Spirit's pressing in on you with, and we'll worship that King of Kings together.